Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53. Isaiah 53. This is the, one of the clearer passages in the Old Testament about the suffering of the Messiah. And you'll recognize the events that are fulfilled on Good Friday. We're just going to start at the end of chapter 52, uh, verse 13. We'll pick it up at verse 13 of chapter 52. The Word of God reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors." I may preach to you the gospel from the gospel of Luke, chapter 23. I'm going to be focusing on verse 33, but I'd like to read a few verses earlier to help us with the context. 
We'll begin reading at verse 18. Chapter 23, verse 18. So Jesus is in the courtroom of Pontius Pilate, and the chief priests and the scribes have been accusing him. And then we pick up the story at verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And then we'll go to verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And that's as far as our reading will take us this morning. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, on a hill far away stands an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, says the old hymn. The picture is of the cross of Jesus standing on a hill on Good Friday. And if you were to examine various pictures of this scene or the crucifixion, uh, or paintings of the crucifixion. We even had a little graphic on our church sign the last few days. They're all virtually portrayed the same way, three crosses on the top of a hill. But which hill is it? There are many hills surrounding the city of Jerusalem. On which one was our Lord crucified? Was it even a hill. The Bible actually never says. This is one of those traditional ideas that a lot of people assume is just a simple fact because it gets repeated so often, kind of like the idea that there were three wise men that came to honor Jesus at His birth. Everyone refers to the three wise men who came from the east, but did you know the Bible never gives us that number? could have been three wise men, but it could have been five or nine or thirteen. We just don't know. Well, it's the same with the place of Christ's crucifixion. Was it a hill? Could be. But the Bible only says concerning the location that it has a name, the name given in our text. Christ, the Lamb of God, was put to death at a place called the Skull. What's the significance of that? And why don't we know where it is? Well, I hope to answer these questions for us as we worship Good Friday morning and as I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, Christ 
crucified at the skull. We'll see that this skull is an unmemorable place, but at this unmemorable place took place an unforgettable event. That's our second point. Well, our text is very simple in its wording. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And it might be good just to clear up a little potential misunderstanding about the name of this place. In other, the other Gospels, we read that the place is called Golgotha. Well, Golgotha is simply the Hebrew or Aramaic term for skull. Luke doesn't use it. He prefers to use the Greek word for skull because he's writing to a Greek man, Theophilus. But those two words, Golgotha and skull, are identical in meaning, which is really the same with that third word we sometimes hear uh, applied to the place where Jesus died, the, the name Calvary. We have that in one of our hymns, for example, hymn 42, our surety and our Lord is He who shed His blood on Calvary. Calvary, that's just a word taken out of the Latin translation of our text, used widely in the Roman Catholic Church. So whether you hear Golgotha or Calvary or the skull, all mean the same thing, all refer to the same location. And yet, where is that location? It was one of those places, apparently, that everybody in Jesus' day knew about. It's the place called the skull, of course. That's where people are crucified. You didn't need to explain it. It was kind of a nickname, kind of like when we ask, hey, are you going to come to Tim's with us later on? Then in our context here in Canada, everyone knows that's not the house of Tim Boss. It's the house of, or the coffee house of Tim Horton. We understand that. We don't have to explain that, right? Everybody knows where you're going when you say you're going to Timmy's. Well, same with this little spot called the skull. So common, so well known that nobody bothered to record its location in the history books. One of the most popular explanations for why it was called this was because some people say, well, there's a rock outside of Jerusalem, kind of a, a knoll that looks like it's in the shape of a skull. You can look, if you look a certain way you can see a pair of eyes and it kind of looks like the face of a man like sometimes we look at the moon and you see the man in the moon while well, some people see the man on the rock and they say that's why it's called the skull another idea is that the name arose from the many skulls that would have been buried close by because it was a place of crucifixion and still another more ancient tradition is that it was called the skull because that's where Adam's skull was buried the skull could, refers to, could refer to the first skull, the skull of the first man. But the reality is those are all guesses. None of those ideas are in the Bible. What the Bible reveals, what the Holy Spirit reveals, is really just a few details about this place. We know it was outside the walls of Jerusalem, but it was still close to the city. That's what Gospel of John 19 tells us. We also know it was close to the main road so that many people could view the execution. And that was a, a big idea for the Romans. They wanted people to see these executions because they wanted the population to be afraid of falling under the, the watchful eye of, of the Roman power. They wanted people to be afraid of 
defying Rome. It was a place that was visible from a distance, we know that too, and we know that it was a place where there was a garden close by and tombs. But even with those bits of data, the site of crucifixion could be any of a number in and around, or around Jerusalem. So where is this place called the Skull? Nobody knows. All we know is it's a place with a sinister name, a name that brings to mind thoughts of torture and agony, a place where people were mercilessly and publicly executed by the Romans. And when you think about the fact that we don't know where this place is, isn't that rather striking? I mean, this is the place where the Lord Jesus Christ died. This is the place where the Son of Man endured the agonies of hell. The spot where he was despised and cursed by both God and man. It was at this particular location that our very salvation was won. And yet, this place is not on the map of Christianity. How different from how normally things work, even just among the general population. I mean, people have always marked the locations of significant deaths. Still today, people will mark the very spot where loved ones died. I mean, you just have to go down the link or down different highways, and you can see various memorials, right? Often flowers and a, a stake in the ground and some kind of marker that indicated that somebody, some loved one died there. Or think of the memorials on the beaches of Normandy or in Pearl Harbor, or in any of a thousand places where people lost their lives. But this, this spot where the, where the world's Savior died, it was never marked, and it has never been remembered. And in this little fact, we see the hand of God at work, for nothing happens without His will. If He had wanted it marked and remembered, He would have had it done so. Every step of Christ's ministry unfolded with divine precision. And what we see here is a significant change from how the Lord God operated in the Old Testament. If you think back to the Old Testament, there were definitely places that were marked. Altars were set up at certain places. Memorials were set up at other places. Joshua set up 12 stones after the Israelites crossed the Jordan to remember that great miracle. Jacob erected a, an altar at Bethel after God appeared to him. Most significantly, the Lord God Himself chose the city of Jerusalem as the place where His name would dwell and His temple would be built. There in Jerusalem, there at the temple, would be the place that goats and bulls and lambs would be offered daily for the forgiveness of the sins of, of God's people. It was clearly marked. We know where the temple stood even to this very day. We know exactly where it was. And yet the spot where the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world was offered in fulfillment of the temple, that spot has been totally expunged from history. Do you see in that, brothers and sisters, something of the suffering of our Lord and Savior, how this unmemorable place contributes to His humiliation. He came to earth to suffer. He came to earth to 
take our place under the weight of God's wrath and to be humiliated for us. Here He came to die a sinner's death, a criminal's death in an ignoble place called the skull that nobody cared about and nobody could bother to mark down for future reference. You recall from our sermons in John how Jesus ministered mostly in Galilee, which itself was a, an obscure, forgettable part of the country, and now we see that He dies in obscurity on a Roman cross on a forgettable scrap of hard scrabble somewhere outside the city wall. The place of the skull is an unmemorable place that added to His humiliation. But at the same time, it shines a light. It shines a light on His death, which was an unforgettable event. For that is what people remember. Hundreds of millions of people will be gathered this very day, Good Friday, all over the world to remember not the place, but the event of the crucifixion. The rest of our text mentions this pinnacle of Jesus' work in very simple but profound words. There they crucified Him. The place is forgettable, but who could ever forget what took place there? The Lamb of God came there to be slaughtered for the sins of His people. The King of Israel, the one we sang about from Psalm 89, he was forced outside of his own city gates. Remember, Jerusalem is the city of the kings. He was forced outside the city in order to defend his people to the death, and yet while he was doing that, nobody realized what he was doing. We read that part in Isaiah 53, speaking of the servant, the suffering servant king who would come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet... We esteemed him stricken. We figured, that's what Isaiah is saying, we figured he was smitten by God when we saw him suffering. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, but we figured he was a criminal. People thought, as they looked upon Jesus on the cross, that he must have been quite the sinner because he was getting quite the punishment. The hand of God was upon him. Look at that guy. They despised him. They thought he was a reject. Even his own disciples didn't understand what was happening. They only could watch from a distance in shame and in horror and in deep disillusionment as all their dreams for this rabbi from Nazareth, all their hopes they had put in Jesus suddenly were dying along with Jesus on the cross. So this whole event of Good Friday looked to the disciples and it looked to the watching world like a total disaster, a total failure. Not only was He nailed to the cross, but He was crucified as one of three criminals. Luke tells us in our text that they put Jesus right there in the center. If you put something in the center, you're trying to draw attention to it. That's what they were doing. They wanted people to see Jesus associated with those around Him, a criminal on His right, a criminal on His left. When Rome crucified people, 
They always came with a charge written on a board over their heads. So these two, like Jesus, were convicted of some kind of crime. The other Gospels call them robbers. Luke says they were criminals. They could very well have been part of the gang of Barabbas. We read about how Barabbas was released. We know that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. That means he was a, a revolutionary. He had tried to overthrow the Romans by violence. Barabbas, we know, got a get-out-of-jail-free card that day, but Jesus gets sent to the skull along with two mercenaries to be nailed to a cross, to be tortured to death as if Jesus was one of those violent insurrectionists. By grouping the three together, Rome was telling the world, this Jesus is just another criminal. He's dying for his own crimes. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted as one of the sinners who transgressed the law. To all who looked that day upon Jesus, all they saw was just another thief, just another wicked man, just another rebel, just like the others on either side of him. That's what people saw at the skull. But that wasn't what was happening at the skull. Because Jesus was not like the guy on his right and the guy on his left. The truth is, and it was brought home to the disciples who were watching that day with horror, they would have figured this out after the resurrection, after the Lord came, back, came to them and explained things. Jesus was hanging there by His choice, and He was hanging there for a specific purpose. Unlike those two criminals, Jesus was not passively undergoing something he couldn't avoid. Remember, he could have called down legions of angels from his father, and he could have been set free from the, the Roman soldiers at any moment he wished. The robbers didn't have that available to them. No, Jesus stayed the course. He did not call down the angels. He willingly allowed himself to be led to the skull because he, he was actively doing the task his father had sent him to do. So while people were looking on with horror and judging Jesus wrongly, Christ was at work at the skull to secure the very dreams and hopes the disciples thought were being crushed. He was there to secure the ultimate hope of all of his people because he wasn't there to die for his own sake, but for our sake. He wasn't humiliated because he deserved it. He allowed Himself to be humiliated because we deserved it. The place of His death is unmemorable without recognition. Why? Because our death should have been without recognition and without honor and unmemorable. He let Himself be nailed to the cross because of our transgressions, not His own. He had none. He allowed himself, that's what he was doing, he allowed himself to be crushed by the wrath of God to pay off the total debt for your sin and mine. He was busy that day, that Good Friday, carrying the weight of our sins. 
He carried it from the courtroom of Pontius Pilate to the place called the Skull, and there all those sins of ours that were on his shoulders, those sins of ours, they died with Jesus on the cross. That's what he was doing. Our curse, it's gone, you see. Our guilt, it's gone before God. By his wounds, Jesus was busy healing. And through his hellish agony and his death, he gives us peace. He gives us everlasting life. Who could ever forget that event? And now we can see, brothers and sisters, the, the wisdom of God a little better in letting the place called the skull fall away into the forgotten annals of history because it's not about the place at all, is it? It's not about the place. We don't have to go and make a pilgrimage to that place called the skull. We don't have to go to the hill far away, do we? The Lord Jesus made that clear on another occasion, speaking to the Samaritan woman, John 4. Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Gerizim, or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Location of worship will have no relevance in the new covenant. The Old Testament ceremonies, the signs and the holy places, all the holy altars, all those memorial stones that had been set up, they have given way in the, in the suffering and death of Jesus to a fuller experience and a, a richer reality of the truth than were contained in those Old Testament shadows. The fuller experience of the gospel, the gospel of the forgiveness from sins granted by grace alone through the atonement provided in God alone, that was always proclaimed in the Old Testament shadows, but now it comes to us in, in the full color, the full reality of Jesus' death on the cross. The place is insignificant, but the event, that is the gospel. That's the good news of life, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the past, and that event must be believed by us. It must be cherished and trumpeted and shared and remembered and celebrated by every follower of Christ. It's the event of the world's history that changes history. And to do that, to commemorate and celebrate the death of our Savior, we do not have to travel to the skull. We only have to take our seat at the table of the Lord, as we hope to do again on Sunday, in two days. We don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and walk the Via Dolorosa. We don't have to weep and be overwrought at the stations of the cross. We only have to come here to the gathering of God's people. We only have to come where He feeds us with His Word Sunday by Sunday. We only have to come to the feast He'll prepare for us this Sunday in the Lord's Supper, in the bread and the wine. And we come not to mourn His death, but to remember it. 
not to cry in sorrow over the torturous death of an innocent man by cruel and unjust oppressors, but to rejoice greatly in the work that Jesus did, the victory that the man, Jesus, won as He willingly laid down His life for us. At the Lord's Supper, we are united to His body and blood by the working of Jesus' Spirit, and so we receive all the benefits of Christ's Good Friday work. Think about that as we prepare to celebrate the Supper on Sunday. You know, to the unbeliever, to the non-Christian, the cross, the cross is, is foolishness. The cross is a footnote in history. The cross is a joke. The cross is a waste of time. But for us who believe what Jesus did there, it is the wisdom of God for salvation. It is for us the beginning of life eternal, life in peaceful fellowship with our Creator and with one another. It's, it's the beginning of a new era. The place, the place called the skull, you can forget about the place, but the event on the cross that happened there, don't you ever forget it, beloved. It's life for us. Jesus bore our sins, our griefs, our sorrows. He made intercession for us. Your sins stand against you then no more. And God isn't angry with you or me anymore. No anger from God, only love. Because of Christ at the skull, trust that and be at peace forever. Amen.